following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I came across an interesting article this week uh, that really grabbed my attention. It was one of those articles that you see pop up the headline and you're You have to save that headline for later and explore some more. So I found this headline that there were these riots that broke out all across the nation of France. These riots that broke out. There was a specific uh, supermarket uh, that this brand of supermarkets in France, there were riots and police presence in all of these places throughout France. It was bizarre. And I remember reading through the article, and I want to read one of the uh, uh, news agencies that reported on it. This is from BBC. This is what they said about these riots. They said, there were violent scenes in a chain of French supermarkets. Police were called when people across France began fighting and pushing one another in these markets. And this is a quote from a witness who was there, a shopper. They're like animals. A woman had her hair pulled, an elderly lady took a box to her head, another man had a bloody hand, and another had a black eye. A member of the staff at one of the supermarkets said this. This was from a supermarket in central France. He said, Uh, we're trying to get in between the customers as the staff, but they're pushing us away. So all of these riots that happened throughout France with a real police presence of this particular chain, you may wonder, well, what caused all of this? Was it political unrest? Was it an organized protest by some organization? Maybe the grocery chain had some unethical practices or was causing environmental harm. What was it that caused all of this distress throughout the nation of France? And here's what it was, a 70% sale on Nutella. (laughs) Nutella was 70% off, and as a result, riots ensued in French supermarkets. Now, I'm I'm personally very passionate about Nutella. Um, Hazelnut and chocolate, I think, are a match made in heaven. So the spread, I'm a fan of. I don't know that I'm a fan to the degree that I would become like a barbarian in response to hearing that there is a sale on Nutella. Now... Today, we're going to be talking about a very, very heavy topic. We're going to be talking about something that's weighty. And this picture we have of riots ensuing across the nation of France is on the extremely light side of the topic we're about to address. I mean, the fact that a 70% sale on Nutella would usher a riot across the state, the country of France. I mean, that's bizarre. That tells something about human self-centeredness. In fact, you can go and Google, not now, Google and see what happened. The, the scenes and videos from France, they're wild. People grabbing whole handfuls of Nutella, shoving old ladies in the process, okay? So that's human self-centeredness exposed, okay? That's the lighter end of the spectrum. But this week, if you are following the news, there are also things on the heavier end of the spectrum of what we're going to talk about here in a few moments. So we found out about Things that happen in Kentucky at a school where time and time again we see it, it seems like every time it happens, it's like this, why? Where a shooting occurs, where there's evil, and we can't put our finger on it, and we don't understand why. You know, something that Christians have wrestled with throughout centuries, it's not a new discussion, it's not something new that's a new objection, something that Christians and people of faith everywhere have had to wrestle with is if there is a God who is good and powerful, then why is there so much evil in our world today? Why do we turn on our news and see so much suffering? 
And for some of us, we don't have to turn on the news. All we have to do is examine what's happening right around us and we know evil is up close and personal. Where we ourselves have experienced suffering, we ourselves have been ones who have been hurt, abused, abandoned, betrayed by the people we love. We know what it's like. And so what do we do with this question? And so what I want to do in our time together is I want to move from the philosophical to the personal. There is a legitimate problem. It's called the problem of evil, and authors and philosophers have some devoted their entire lifetimes to writing on this very topic. And so it's clear that in a few moments, I'm not going to be able to solve everybody's problems and say, oh, see, it's all over. No, but what I want to do is I want to address some of the intellectual, logical, rational components to this, but then I want to move and really make a beeline to the personal. Because what's so powerful about this question and so difficult about this question, why would God allow evil and suffering in our world? Really, it becomes personal because of the things that have happened to us. So here's um, the traditional statement of the problem of evil. This is from a guy named Epicurus. He lived in the 4th century BC. He was a Greek philosopher and a contemporary of Alexander the Great. Epicurus was also the founder of the school uh, called Epicureanism, and here's what he said concerning evil and God. Here's the classic statement. Maybe you've heard it. If God is unable to prevent evil, then he is not all-powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he is not all-good. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? It's a difficult question. It's not easy. In fact, a, a Several months ago, I had a student one time email me this very question. A classmate of theirs shared this with them, and they didn't know what to say. And maybe you can relate. What do we say to that if you're a person of faith? Or if you're the person who's skeptical and you have objections to faith for maybe this very reason, is there even a solution? Is there a response that's adequate enough? And so what I hope to do from Romans chapter 1 is establish a foundation for us to be able to dialogue about evil. What does the Bible describe as evil? What is the definition of evil? Where does it come from? And how can we begin to think about how a loving and powerful God could allow a world in which there's such a thing as evil? So that brings us to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome. He says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. If you've been following with us the past several weeks, we've been addressing this same passage, and we've made it clear that they in this passage, when he says, and they, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that they in that sentence is not a particular group of people, it's not a, a particular uh, religion, it's not a particular ethnicity or social class, he's t- describing all of humanity, all of mankind, including us, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So here's what that statement means to see fit to acknowledge God. He's describing how human beings did not think it valuable to acknowledge the authority and power that God has over us. I'll illustrate it like this. I've got a one and a half year old son named Hudson, and he's just getting to the place where he's becoming increasingly verbal. He's using words, and it's adding some new dimensions to our relationship, which is awesome. But there's something that he started to do that although I find it absolutely adorable, I know that as a parent, I've got to nip it in the bud can't keep going down that path because it'll lead towards troubling days ahead. And so he'll do this thing where I'll say, all right, Hudson, it's time to go and take a bath. We're going to go take a bath. And he'll look at me with this kind of cute, sweet face. 
He'll look right at me and after me asking him, hey, buddy, hey, we're going to go take a bath. Now, he'll just look at me and say, no. <laughs> and inside, I'm like, that is so adorable, okay? But on the outside, I'm trying to keep my demeanor. Hey, hey son, we, daddy said we're going to take a bath. You can't decide that. I'm, I'm going to go take you to the bath now. Or I'll say, hey, Hudson, it's time to go night-night, and he'll look up to me and he'll be like, no, right? And he has this kind of dialogue. Now, if you stretch that out over time, eventually that becomes an 11-year-old who wants to go play outside, and you tell him, hey, buddy, um, you got to do your homework before you can play outside with your friends, right? At that point, him saying no is not cute anymore, right? No longer, and it's not acceptable. Now, that small little picture is a little tiny microcosm of what we have essentially done with God. God has authority over us. He's our creator. And he has created us to live in accordance with his wisdom, in accordance with his good design and his commandments. And he's created us in that way. And really, he's invited us to live life in its fullest possible sense. When a creator makes something and designs something, the instructions for how to use that thing are for the good of the person using it. So God created us and invites us into his good design. And we look at him and we say to his face, no, I'll do what I want. I'll live my own way. And what Paul is describing here when he says, and humanity, all of us, did not see fit to acknowledge God. He's describing our perpetual insistence on refusing God's authority and instead inserting our own selves as our own gods, thinking we could do a better job of running our lives, thinking we know what's best. And so we reject his authority. We reject, we say no, and we go about our business. And so what is God's response to us not seeing fit to acknowledge him over our lives, our, God's response is this. At the end of verse 28, he says, so God gave them up. Describes what he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Now that phrase, God gave them up, it appears three times in Romans chapter one. Three occasions and it's the same word that's used. God gave them up and the idea is of someone being delivered into your hands. Like when an enemy, an enemy nation, is battling, and if God delivers that enemy nation into your hands, that's what it means to give them up, to deliver them. So what God's response is to our failure to acknowledge his authority over us is God responds by saying, okay, I'm gonna give you over to exactly what it is that you're asking for. I'm giving you over. God in complete control. God does not have his hands tied when it comes to our disobedience. God doesn't have his hands tied when it comes to evil. God, in complete control, gives us over. He's in the position of power. He says, I'm giving you over to your sinful desires, to a debased mind, to twisted thoughts, to do what ought not be done. Now, that's harsh, difficult to wrap our minds around, but he takes it up a notch and makes it even harsher. Look at verses 29 through 31. 29 through 31, he continues describing what this looks like. He says, they, remember all of us, mankind, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And he describes how these things are filled in us. 
They are filled. Mankind, humanity, we, we are filled with these things. He takes it a step further and describes the evil in our hearts, that we have deceit in our hearts, that we have self-centeredness and envy and lies, jealousy, bitterness, malice, all of these things, they're filled up in our hearts. So this, all of this language kind of is jarring, but what he's doing is he's giving us an honest diagnosis of our hearts. He's being a good doctor, exposing what's wrong. And then, yet again, he takes it a step further. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Our problem is not just that we have all of these things filling our hearts, foolishness, envy, hatred of God, insolence, malice, That's not just our problem. Our problem is that we also approve of that in others and we facilitate their envy and jealousy and selfishness and deceit. That's a scathing review of the human condition. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around and maybe you might be thinking, well, that just, that's a little bit extreme. I I don't know that I can get on board with that because sure, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm not a murderer, okay? I'm not I'm not like that per se, but here's what I want you to think about because this is where Paul is calling you to ponder. I want you to suppose with me that there was this new technology that was invented. In the world we live in today, this wouldn't be too far-fetched. Suppose with me there's this new technology invented that was able to record every single thought you have throughout the entire day. Every thought. So when you get ready for work, your alarm goes off. When you roll out of bed, when you're stuck in traffic, when you just got cut off, when you're at work in the meeting with your boss, when you get home from an exhausting day and you've got your kids, when you're in your classroom and your teacher is giving you extra homework that day, when you go to the lunchroom and all of a sudden you realize there's drama, every thought throughout your entire day, it recorded them, give you a transcript of them, and then it publishes it and sends it to your friends and family. <sighs> the chaos that would ensue, right? Riots throughout, okay? That would be, that would be crazy. Now, I'm convinced that if such technology existed, we could get a transcript of every single thought. A couple things would take place. Number one, clearly the man's transcript would be much shorter than the woman's transcript. Okay? I've had conversations with my wife before. I'll be just kind of like looking off, you know, into the distance, and my wife's like, what are you thinking about, sweetie? And I'll be like, nothing. And she'll be like, wait, what do you mean nothing? And I'm saying, I was just looking over there. And... Nothing. And, and it's hard for her to grasp because her mind's constantly churning about a thousand things, right? I, I could fall asleep in five seconds. It takes her like 30 minutes and she gets frustrated about it. So uh, men, we have this gift, right? We can like literally at times not think about anything. Here's, here's what I want you to think about. The second thing that we'd notice if this was published, we'd notice and we'd come face to face at the end of every day of how much our hearts are filled with malice and envy and jealousy how much our hearts are filled with deceit and lies and pride. If we were to have that published and sent out, here's how I know that this would be bad. Because if you're anything like me, there are times when even the people I love and I like, where I'll have thoughts of envy towards them, where I'll feel bitter about them because they have something that I don't have and I want it. I might be angry at them because they have it and I don't. And if that's the case for the people I like, 
Imagine the thoughts of the people that I have trouble liking. Imagine those thoughts, okay? So imagine if this was published, sent out, the chaos that would ensue. Here, what does that illustrate? It illustrates that verses 29 through 31 are an accurate description of the human heart. That we are filled with these things and the Apostle Paul, if we still haven't been convinced, turn the page in your Bible, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, follow along on the screen as well. Here's what he says. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So his description of humanity is not that we're just kind of these neutral creatures where everything's kind of cool and chill and sometimes we may mess up. No, his description of humanity is an honest diagnosis of our problem that we are broken, that we've looked at our loving creator who designed us to live for him and in according to his ways and we have said to him in the face, no. So Paul exposes that and he brings it to light. And so now we have a foundation from which we can talk about the problem of evil. Now we can start to dialogue. If Epicurus was here, we could begin to dialogue with him about his problem. Here's the first thing that Epicurus says in his trilemma there that we posted earlier. He said, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. If God is unable to prevent evil, he's not all-powerful. Well, verse 28 makes something absolutely clear. Verse 28 says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them over. Who's in the position of power in this instance? God. He's in control. He's ruling and reigning, and God freely gives us over to our desires, gives us over to a debased mind, gives us or delivers us into our own sinful hands, and we, as a result, do what ought not be done. This is the description that Paul uses, and so this statement by Epicurus, if God is not able to prevent evil. Well, God is able to prevent evil. His hands are not tied. He's not powerless. He's not powerless, right? Dualism, this idea that there are these equal forces of good and equal forces of bad battling against one another, that's not the description of who our God is. God is in control over evil, and in fact, we see several times throughout human history, we see several times in scripture, and I can share with you several times in my own life when God has restrained evil, when God has intervened, when he has pushed back darkness, time and time again where I was one step from stupid, and you've all been there, and God will arrange the circumstances of your life in these times to intervene and prevent you from going where you don't want to go. God does step in and he does that. However, the primary mode in which God works is God has given us the freedom to say yes or no. God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And this verse also teaches us where evil is located. Because where, where is evil? Sometimes we think of evil in terms of like these spiritual forces, which is a good and positive, like right way to think about evil. There are spiritual forces at work in our world that are unseen. They're realities, principalities. We can't see them. There are spiritual forces outside of us that are not for our good, that are for evil. But don't miss what verses 29 through 31 expose. That if we're to point out evil in a room like this, 
If I was to say, hey, here's where evil is or there's where evil is, where I would have to start pointing is my heart. That's where evil is located. Evil's located right here. And my self-centered refusal to trust in God's authority over my life and instead to insist I be my own authority. And the planet is full with people, billions of people, trying to be their own gods rather than submitting to the authority of the one true living God. And what that ends up looking like, if we think about, okay, if God is all power, he can get rid of evil. He can get rid of all of it. What that ends up looking like is God wiping us out in the process. What would it look like for God to remove evil? Well, he'd have to take me out. He'd have to take you out. And so God could do that. But instead, what God chooses to do is he initiates a plan of redemption where he sends forth his son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world. And Jesus perfectly fulfills the righteous requirements of the law, unlike us. And Jesus' death on the cross in our place takes all of the evil that we've committed, all of the judgment that we deserve, all of the punishment that justice requires. Jesus takes that in our place, dies for us on the cross, and then rises up from the grave. And that moment when Jesus did that in our place, that initiated this chain reaction of events whereby God is now redeeming the very people in whom evil resides. He's redeeming us. And when a person makes their decision to trust in Jesus as their savior, God is working this process where he's making us more and more like him. One degree at a time, slowly but surely, even as we fail and take two steps back, the Holy Spirit convicting us, bringing us back, God working in us to make us more and more like him until one day we see him face to face and we're perfected in glory. This is what God is doing. So yes, God is powerful. His hands are not tied when it comes to evil. So the second statement then to address that, if God is not willing to prevent evil, then he is not all good. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not all good. Well, here's what this assumes. This assumes that God couldn't have a reason to allow something to happen unless we can think of it ourselves. It assumes that, well, I'm smart enough, and if I can't think of a reason possible as to why God would allow something like this to happen, well, then God can't have any good reason for it. I want to read this quote to you from Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Reason for God. Here's what he says. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean that there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-line skepticism, an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, then there must not be any. This is blind faith of a high order. He's showing the irony and the paradox in those who consider themselves skeptical. Those who are logical, I'm rational, I don't like to think in terms of faith, I think in terms of reason. Here's what we do when we say, God, you can't you can't allow evil and suffering. We're saying that I am intelligent enough and I have enough faith in my brain power that I would have the reason in my mind myself. And if I can't come up with a reason as to why you would allow something like this, this to happen, well, then there must not be any. It's faith. It's blind faith. And so we know this not to be true because if you're here and you have either been on the receiving end of this or if you've taken a child before to the doctor, you take the child to the doctor and they need to get a vaccine, and you get a vaccine, and the child wants nothing to do with it. All that the child can grasp in their mind, this hurts, this is painful, why am I here again? 
And they get like strapped down, right? And they have their arms and mommy and daddy are, it's okay, sweetie, it's everything's, I'm gonna get you lollipop after this, okay? Right? So you're having this conversation trying to assure them, hey, it's gonna be okay. But all the child can understand within their mental capacity is this hurts, this is dumb. Why am I here? This is not right. But the parent has the perspective and the wisdom to know that in the end, this is actually for their good. They just can't understand it yet. Couldn't God have a reason beyond our understanding as to why he made the world the way he did? We have far more of a limited capacity for knowledge than our children have in comparison to us when it comes to God. So this idea of God not being willing to prevent evil, making him not all good, it logically doesn't hold up. C.S. Lewis also said this, making us consider what kind of world would it be Let's say God intervened every time something bad happened. Every time somebody tried to do something evil, God intervened. He did something miraculous to step in and stop the evil from occurring. Look at what C.S. Lewis says about such a world. He says, we can perhaps conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of the abuse of free will by his creatures at every moment so that a wooden beam, for instance, became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon. And the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible, and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. That God can and does, on occasions, modify the behavior of matter, the material world, and produce what we call miracles is part of the Christian faith. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare." Don't miss what Lewis is saying. He's saying to conceive of a world where God constantly intervened at every moment in turn, the world wouldn't make sense to us. That the same wooden beam that would be used to support a building in a facility like this all of a sudden becomes as soft as a blade of grass when we try to use it as a weapon. The reality that he's pointing to is that such a world really is nonsensical. God gave us over to our debased mind to a sinful desire to do what ought not be done. And here's what Lewis also gets at. The same requirement, the same freedom that we have to morally say yes to God or say no to God. The freedom he set up in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve could have said yes to him, I'll trust you, or no to him, I'm gonna take the forbidden fruit anyway. That same freedom that opens up the door for evil and hurt and suffering is the same freedom that's a requirement for love. Love can't be coerced. Love can't be forced. Love can't be put a gun to your head, you better love this person no matter what. Love is a choice, freely bestowed on an object by someone making that decision to put the other above yourself. And if God is love, if God inspired the Apostle John to describe his very nature, if we can say God is love, and if the supreme ethic of the universe is love, then in order for love to be an inexistence, then the very situation that opens the door for evil must also be there. So God created a world in which we could experience his love and know his love. And in his wisdom, in his knowledge that's far beyond our own, it was far better to do that. Now, this is the philosophical side of the discussion, but I want to move to the personal side because I don't doubt that The majority of us here, it's not about whether we can debate in our minds how this logically makes sense. For most of us, when it comes to evil and suffering, what weighs on us is why has this happened to me? 
what weighs on us is, yeah, but God, why, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why was I abused? Why was I betrayed? Why was I left alone? Why was I outcast? Why have I been hurt and wounded in this way? Why, God? Why would you allow this? And so what I want to offer you is just three reasons you can have hope. In the midst of whatever suffering, whatever pain in your past, whatever you're wrestling with now in this moment, I want to offer you three words of hope. Now, I want to clarify the kind of hope I'm talking about is not the kind of hope that you use when you say, you know, I hope that when we go to Sawgrass Mills yes, uh, later today, hope when we go to Sawgrass to go do some shopping that we'll find some parking and it'll be readily available. That's literally hopeless. But to make, to make that statement is wishful thinking, right? It's wishful thinking, right? I hope, you know, we have ice cream after dinner today. I hope this or that. That's not the hope we're talking about. Christian hope is this confident expectation about my future and the good that God has purposed for it that brings me peace right now in my present. It's this confident assurance of something I can't yet see, but I know it's going to happen because I'm trusting it, and that's bringing me peace right now even as the world around me might seem to be falling apart. This is the kind of hope that God offers to you, and I want to give you three reasons why you can have such hope. Here's the first one. The first reason, if you're taking notes, please write this down. Write this. Number one, God is actively removing all evil by restoring his creation. God is actively removing all evil by restoring his creation. God's posture towards evil, it's definitely not that he has his hands tied. It's definitely not that he's saying to us, hey, sorry, I wish I could do something about it. And his posture is also not casual towards evil and injustice. God's posture towards evil is active. He is actively removing evil by restoring his creation. God will bring to justice those who have taken advantage of and oppressed others. God is active when it comes to evil. And what we have as a hope as believers in Christ is not that God is going to like just swoop us out of this world and take us from all the corrupt that is to be a physical world with material things and matter. No, no, no. What God is actually doing is he's restoring his creation, bringing heaven down so that we can experience life as he intended it. God is making all things new. In fact, here's what he says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Turn with me there if you can. This will also be on the screen. Here's what the Apostle John says. God gives him this incredible vision of what the end of the story looks like. Look what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God has given us the end of the story. Whenever you watch a, a sports event, a sporting event, and it's your team, 
and you have it recorded, you watch it later, but you've checked the score, you know how it ends up, and you know your team is ultimately going to win. Even if your team is getting blown out at halftime, you already know the end of the story. So you can watch the game, and you can be cool, calm, and collected. You might be the kind of sports fan that's like a wreck when your team is not winning, and you're nervous, and you're frantic. But when you're watching, and you already know the end result, you're cool. You know where this is going. You know how it all turns out. What God has given us in his word is a promise of how all is going to turn out. And the way that it looks, the end picture is a restored and renewed heavens and earth where death will be no more, where suffering will be a thing of the ancient past, where tears will have no purpose, where all will experience is glory, disease gone, physical ailments, brokenness gone. Well, we'll be reconciled to our God and we'll be with him face to face, experiencing life as he intended it. That's reason to have hope. That's reason to have a confident assurance about our future that brings me peace right now, even as I'm suffering. The second reason we can have hope is that God has invited you into his, fam- his family. God has invited you into his family, the church. The remarkable thing about reading a passage like Romans is that God invites evil, covetous, malicious, deceitful, gossiping, slandering, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless people to be a part of his family. That God so loved you in spite of your failures, in spite of your faults, that he calls you into his family and he invites you to belong. If West Pines is a place for you where it's your, it's your Sunday place, Maybe you've been coming for a while and you try and make it to as many Sundays as you can. Here's what I want to encourage you with. That if all your experiences of a local church is just attendance on Sunday and you haven't yet made the step, taken the bold commitment to open yourself up and to be in community, to get to know people, then I can't encourage you enough for the sake of the times when you will be going through suffering, for the sake of the times when other people you know, when other people who are suffering could use your word of encouragement and your help. For our sake, make this place where you belong, not just attend. God invites us to be a part of his family. One of the things that we do at West Pines, one of the primary ways we live this out is through our community groups. This afternoon, I've got mine. Throughout the week, we have groups that meet all throughout our city. And one of the things, group leaders, you're going to be discussing with your community groups this week is, Okay, what does it look like to be with one another in the times of suffering that we'll experience? How have we been wounded in the past for how the church hasn't handled that the right way? How can we learn from that and do better next time? How can we serve one another? What's so amazing is the New Testament, over 59 times it tells us, 59 times it uses this idea of one another. 59 times where we see this phrase, one another, pop up. And every time in those 59 cases, there's an action attached to the one another. Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. All of these one another's included in the New Testament are intended to be lived out in a family of faith, a family where we belong. And so I'd invite you, consider joining a group, one of our groups that meets throughout the week. You can check the box on your connection card, find out more about how you can get involved in a group. But that's where a a large facility like this becomes an intimate setting with friends where you can grow and learn, encourage and be encouraged. God invites you into his family. The third thing that gives us hope, the third reason we can have hope is that God understands your suffering. 
God understands your suffering. One of the most encouraging things that has happened to me in my life, whenever I've been through seasons where I'm tempted to ask God, why would you allow that? One of the best things that anyone could experience when you're suffering, when you're experiencing pain and you don't have answers, a precious gift is to find someone who has been through the same thing. It's a precious gift to find someone who can say to you in all honesty, I know what that's like. I've been through that. And for them on the other side of that hurt and pain to be able to walk alongside you and walk with you and be a a light and encouragement to you. Such a gift. Well, here's the reality. If there's ever a moment in all of human history If there was ever a moment that we might be tempted to say definitively and confidently, God, where are you in this? This seems to defy any sense of logic. I can't come up with any redeemable reason as to why you would allow this to happen. If there's any event in human history where we might be tempted to say, God, where are you? There's actually this thing that happened outside of the gates of Jerusalem. See, during the Roman occupation of the city of Jerusalem, one of the things that they would do is they would crucify criminals outside of the city gates and crowds would form. They'd put them on busy roads so that it would become a spectacle. And one of the, ra- the ways that the Romans showed their force and basically told the people, you better not act up, is that they would make it clear that if you act up, this is what's going to happen to you. And on one occasion, about 2,000 years ago or so, there was a man who went outside the city gates and was whipped, beaten, nailed to a cross and hung there next to some criminals, and this man had done nothing wrong. And not only did this man do nothing wrong, not only was he innocent, but he in fact used all of his power and influence to raise up and lift up the poor, the destitute, the outcast, the sick, the needy, the hurting. All he did with his life was use his influence, his words, his power to lift others up, to proclaim good news, and that landed him on a cross where he's being publicly humiliated, shamed, and killed as a spectacle. And if there's ever a moment where it would seem justifiable to stare God in the face and say, God, how could you allow such an injustice? Where are you in this? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he hung on the cross, if we were to ask him that question, God, where are you in this? Jesus would look at us and he would say, I am closer than I've ever been. I'm right here. How is God's posture towards evil? Here's what God did. God sends his son. He enters his own story. He comes into our world, and he experiences betrayal. He experiences suffering. He experiences abandonment. And he's crucified, and he dies in our place to pay the price for our redemption. Because Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32 is true along with the rest of the scriptures. We are broken and we don't deserve heaven. So God sends his son into the world to redeem us. Jesus' death is the payment that pays the punishment for our sins against our creator. He died for you. He loved you. Subjected himself to all the powers of evil itself dying in your place, and then three days later, rising up from the grave, making this one thing clear. Evil does not have the last word. He's alive, and he invites anyone and everyone to trust in him, to come to him. And so when you pray, in your suffering, in your hurt, 
You are not praying to some spirit in the sky who's just kind of this philosophical idea. You're praying to a Savior who understands. What a friend we have in Jesus who knows your hurts, who can say to you, I know what it's like, and who's been through on the other side, and he's assuring you that he's gonna walk with you through the process, and he's promising you how it's all gonna turn out for your good. What a friend. So God understands our pain. You know, the primary way that we indicate that we trust in Jesus, the primary way that Christians throughout centuries have said, I have put my trust in Jesus, is through baptism. You see, the Christian life is a life of constantly saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you here. Jesus is confusing, but I'm going to trust you. Jesus, I just failed again, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you forgave me. The Christian life is this constant journey of trusting God every single day. But the Christian life always has a starting point. There's a starting point to when we start trusting in him. And I bet there's some people here today who you've never had that starting point. You've never responded to this message that you aren't good enough to earn God's acceptance, that you're broken just like I am, and you need a Savior. And God sent that Savior in Jesus Christ and offers you forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. And today might be the day where you're saying, this is my starting point. I am putting my trust in my Savior. One of the primary ways we get to put action to our trust in Jesus is through baptism. It's our way of saying, Jesus' death and resurrection, that was my death and resurrection. I believe in him. And so when we're put down underneath the water, it's picturing Jesus' death and burial. And when we're raised up out of the water, we're picturing his resurrection, declaring to the world around us that I am his. He is my savior. I'm identifying with him and I'm showing the world that I am not ashamed of my savior. And if you're someone who has either trusted in Jesus as your savior and you've never been baptized, or if maybe even today you're realizing, I need that. I need to put my trust in Jesus as my savior. I need to start my relationship with God. And the way you put action, the way you do something physical to represent that personal decision in your heart is to follow him in baptism, to say yes to him by declaring with your, with your life that you are his. We have baptism coming up next Sunday. It's gonna be a bigger party than any Super Bowl party you attend. We're gonna do it big. And if you're someone who either today or previously has put your faith in Jesus and you've never been baptized, I wanna invite you to do that. Make that decision. Now, for those of you who are here and you're hurting, I want to offer as a reminder these three words of hope. God is actively removing all evil by restoring his creation. He's invited you into his family, the church, and God understands your suffering. He invites you to trust him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Pray with me as we wrap up. Right now, I want to speak to the person in here who they need the starting point to their faith journey. They need to make that initial decision to trust in Jesus. Maybe today you realize, I'm not good enough. I'm broken. I need a Savior. And you heard the message that God was faithful to provide such a Savior. Then right now where you are, whether you're watching online, or right here in this auditorium, Right now, wherever you're at, you can say something like this to God. Make these words your words. Say, God, I need you. God, today I turn to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue me. Thank you that Jesus' death paid for my sins. 
And thank you that his resurrection is my resurrection. Help me to turn from my sins and to turn towards my Savior. I trust in you. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray for those here who are hurting. I pray for those that evil and suffering is close to home. Lord, I ask that right now in this moment, you'd remind them of your faithfulness. You'd remind them of how, no matter what's going on, you're near. How we can have reason to have hope. Comfort us in this time. Remind us of your faithfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.